Hello and welcome to a podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. This podcast was recorded at the Society of Young Publishers Conference in November 2013. This seminar is titled Career Options in Book Production and features Joanna Mason and Emma Hawes, both from Oxford University Press, and Mark Sheehan from Elsevier. This will be about book production and we've got Joe Mason and Emma Hawes from Oxford University Press are going to kick us off. Um, and then we've got uh, Mark Sheehan from Elsevier um, to follow up and I'm sure there'll be <coughs> questions at the end. Um, so yes, welcome and over to you guys. Thank you. Hi everyone, it's good to see so many of you here. Um, I'm Jo Mason and I'm the Production Manager at OUP and Emma and I are going to spend about 20 minutes just telling you a little about um, production in journals and books as far as it goes for OUP and then we're going to go hand over to Mark who's going to talk to you a bit more about so, as I said, my name is Jo Mason. I've been in journal. I've been in publishing 18 years, all of which has been in journals production, and um, I wouldn't be anywhere else. So, uh, it's it's a great place to be. So, let's start off. What we'll cover. So, we want to tell you what production is. Some little bit about the processes that we follow. The difference between journals and book production. So I work in journals production, Emma's in book production, and although essentially it's the same thing, there are quite a few differences. Um, we'll talk to you about traditional production process, what a production editor does, and the role of digital in production, which obviously has changed a great deal in the last 10, 15 years. So what is production? Basically, we take the written manuscript from the unedited Word files or LaTeX files into the finalised product. That might be print, uh, but more often, especially in journals, this is online and electronic product now. Um, this main, our jobs mainly consist of managing the content, managing the processes and managing the people. So the role of a production editor is very much a project management job these days. Um, so, hi, I'm Emma Hawes. Um, I'm Senior Production Editor at Oxford University Press. Um, I'm actually quite new to publishing. I've only been working in it about four and a half years. Um, all my time has also has been spent in law production, so working on legal books, the kind of big fat books that you see on sale for like £800 and think, does anyone buy them? Yes, they do, because they keep me in a job, so I'm very <laughs> glad they do. Um, so, this is the traditional book production process. Um, regardless of the size of your book or kind of what market it's for, essentially these are steps you need to do to get it kind of like from the word files to a finalised book that you can sell. Um, so we start off with a handover meeting and that takes place between um, myself and then my editorial contact where we run through um, all the requirements of the book. So things like what type of spelling it's going to have, is it US, UK, um, the processes required, what the author's like, and also things like the schedule and budget requirements. Um, we then have a process called pre-edit. I'd actually never heard of this before I came to OUP. Um, and it's a stage we do before copy editing, and it's actually carried out by our pre-press suppliers, so our typesetters. And what they do is they go through the files, and they do all the um, mechanical tasks that we used to get a copy editor to do. So what they can effectively do is run these files through a program, and they can say, like for example, the spelling of this word is inconsistent in this chapter, you need to address it. 
and that, those are the tasks that previously they say we've got a copywriter to do, but it's actually a bit of a waste of their skills. So they do all the more mechanical tasks. We then move on to the copy edit stage, which is where the real value is added. Um, we've got experienced copy editors who go through and check the spelling, check it reads well, check it all makes sense. We then proceed to typesetting, um, and that's essentially what it is. You're setting your book, you're getting your proofs to making it um, look how it should look. We then move on to proofreading, and again, we have kind of experienced proofreaders, um, and they'll go through, read through the proof, proofs in full, checking again, spelling, check it all makes sense. And it's really a final check of the proofs before we send it off to printing. At the same stage, we've also got the index, and this is, and we've also got legal tabling. Um, legal tabling is essentially an index of like cases and legislation that we put in front of the book, and that has to happen at the same time as the proofs. We then move on to revised proofs, um, and that's where we check everything that we marked at proof stage has been implemented, and we do a final check. So these include things like reading through the table of contents and checking that every single entry matches what is set there in the text because you know there's nothing worse than getting a book, you open it, you go to find the con you look up a page and actually the chapter doesn't start on that page. And that's really where we check things like that. And then we move on to and then we send it um, so if it's a print book we send it off to press or if it's an online product we may send it off to another developer and that's when we then have publication. So that was a really whistle-stop tour, but that's essentially the process that happens. So, what does a production editor do? Um, this is kind of the stuff we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So, as Joe has already said, we organise all aspects of the production process. And that previous diagram, we oversee all of that. We organise all of the stages and we make sure they're all done um, when we want them to happen. We also communicate with a wide number of people, and as illustrated in this diagram, this is just a summary of all the people we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. <coughs> it's also worth noting that we don't just work on one book at one time. So on some lists at OUP, we work on 12 to 15 books. On other lists, production have editors have as many as 60 to 70 books, and they're kind of dealing with all of these people for those books at one time. We also manage the schedule of our products to ensure that our titles meet the publication date by monitoring interim deadlines. So some titles may have a strict publication date, you have to meet this date, no fail, we put those advertising out. And it's our job to ensure that no matter what happens throughout the process and what goes wrong, that the book is still in the shops for that date. And then we also ensure that all of our books are published within their agreed budgets. So we monitor the copy editing fees, the proofreading fees, um, we also manage the print costs as well, so checking that we're printing it with the most, um, the best supplier at the best price. And then I would say that the majority of our job is actually problem solving. So in an ideal world, everything would go swimmingly, your proofs would arrive on time, they would, your freelancer would charge you as much as you expected, but that doesn't happen. Um, quite often things go wrong and we're the ones who have to sort it out. Again, whilst ensuring that we're kind of publishing books to schedule and on budget. So, what, what decisions do we have to make on a daily basis? Um, we have to decide what to prioritise. That's our main problem um, and our main decision to make all the time. John's production and Book's production has a very, very high workload. We're always very, very busy, so prioritisation is key. and We're always looking 
at what needs to be done first and how to hit our deadlines. Um, we also have to ensure high quality and we do this in a variety of ways. We use freelance proofreaders, obviously. We manage our suppliers. This is something that's uh, becoming more and more important in the production editor's role in managing our suppliers to do the job for us. Um, and we're constantly looking at a better way to do that. We also ensure we have high quality by receiving feedback. In Jones Production, we, um, we, what's the word I'm looking for? Survey our authors, sorry, we survey our authors regularly as well as our editors and we receive an awful lot of feedback from them and we use that feedback to improve our processes and our customer services. We also look at choosing the best suppliers for the jobs that we need. Um, this again includes freelance copy editors, proofreaders, typesetters, printers, indexers and more importantly our online hosts who do a huge amount of work for us, especially in journals, putting all our content online. We also sense check decisions made from other departments and ensure that their, their decisions are right for the, the title that we're publishing. For example, we have to make editorial might decide that they want a particular type of paper. We have to make sure that paper is the right price. We have to make sure that it will come in within our budget. We have to make sure that we can get the paper that they want and that we can get it in time for our schedule. And we have to make sure it's correct for the product that we want. So we do an awful lot of negotiating with other departments within the press and with our editors and our authors outside of the press to make sure the product is correct for them and also fits in with, with what we can do. Thank you. <laughs> and the challenges. Emma was talking earlier about problem solving and it is very true. A huge amount of our job is problem solving and we have a number of challenges we have to meet every day. Journals in particular um, our main challenge is balancing the speed of publication. In journals, we, pub we one of the most important things is to publish quickly. We're publish publishing academic research. They want it online, they want it out there quickly before anybody else has a similar product out there. And we have to balance that with the quality of the product that we're publishing. So obviously, we want to publish the highest quality product we can and quickly. And on top of this, we have to publish within budget. So that's our main challenge, and we're, const again, constantly looking at ways that we can improve that. Um, balancing schedules versus quality, as I've already, spo already spoken about, and also ensuring the content is up to date. So there's, there's many pu publications in journals and in books where after the, the uh, manuscript has been written, things change, and you have to update it quickly before you publish it. Having said all that, we do love our jobs. Um, for me, it's very rewarding to re receive positive feedback from our authors and editors, and I'm, I'm quite happy to say that we do. We receive an awful lot of positive feedback. Uh, I'm talking to Emma, she was telling me how much she enjoys seeing the finished product. So you get a bunch of Word files, LaTeX files, and in, I don't know how long it is, two, six three months, months six months, <laughs> you've got the, the finished product on your desk. So the, these challenges are all part of what makes the job very, very rewarding. Okay, so we've talked a lot, a lot about print, but as you all know, um, publishing is changing and we can no longer just focus on print books. So when I started out in publishing, we were kind of touching on digital and it was kind of the role, everything was like underway, but now we are really, as a publisher, we are really, really focusing on it. Um, the industry is changing and we no longer work on books. And in OUP, that's been quite a big focus. When I started out, um, our our area was called um, editing, design, and production. We've now changed that, so we are now content operations. So the focus is really on 
not just books, but actually seeing content as a whole and seeing that across different, different formats. Um, as such, we need to establish methods that allow us to have content that is useful, not just today or next week, but in like six months' time, a year's time, five years' time. And producing content that is only that is designed only for one type of product is not the best is not a sensible way to kind of progress. And if you do that, you're going to spend a lot of money developing content for different platforms. So we now use XML as our main workflow, and this ensures that we're producing content that is actually ready to use on a number of different format formats when we need it. So this is an example of an XML workflow title. Um, the title is Blackstone's Criminal Practice. It's very important in the legal world. It's our key flagship title. Um, it's actually a project that I manage, so I'm very proud of it. Um, it's a very large practitioner work. It's 3,500 pages, and we publish it on a yearly basis. It used to just publish as a print book, um, and then we started publishing it as print, and it had a CD-ROM with it. And we now publish it as a print book, e-book, and um, online app on the same day and this is a real challenge because we've obviously got this one set of content that we need to have in three different formats but the way we do that is that right from the start we're capturing the content in XML and that means that we can reuse it when we get to the end of the process and actually that content is finalized we can take it and we've got we can create PDFs from it and that creates our print book we can then send it to a developer and they can create an app for us then we can send it to a different supplier and they can use an e-book. <coughs> and it's really important that, you, that we do that as a kind of all at the same time because the content must be identical. In a book like this, which is all about um, legislation and is used in court by lawyers, it's important that the content matches exactly. So if one day the lawyer forgets their iPad and they have to use the book, the content they're referring to is exactly the same. And then we also have a companion website which has regular updates. And we spoke about... Um, having the need to make sure content is up to date. That's the beauty of electronic publishing, is that actually, if a law changes six months into that year cycle, we can actually put an update online, and our readers have got access to that. Okay, moving on to digital publishing and journals. Journals have been publishing digitally. I was trying to remember, because I was at OUP when the first, first journal went online, and I think it was about 15 years ago. It might be even longer than that. Um, online publishing is ideal for journals. As I said before, for journals in particular, the academic research is being published, they want it out there quickly. They want to be able to search it. They want to be able to link to other articles to do with what they're, what they're reading about. So digital publishing is perfect. It also enables different publication models for journals. So when we first published a journal online, we just published the issue online exactly as it was in print. We now publish in a variety of different ways. We publish what we call advanced access, which is where the author can have their paper published online as soon as it's ready as a standalone product. We also publish continuous publication, which is very similar to advanced access, but the articles are published directly into an issue. We are beginning to see more and more journals become online only as well. Um, at the moment, the majority of our journals are still online in print, and we still do make money from print products. But the print is is beginning to decline, more people are, are looking at it online. Um, also, digital printing in journals allows open access, which I'm sure you've heard about, um, which enables authors to pay 
and have their articles freely available. And again, this year in particular, this is becoming more and more popular and more and more of a challenge for production because there are lots of different ways people can publish open access. And in production, you, although you're not massively involved in the decision making, you do have to recognise the different copyright lines and the different ways that things are published to ensure that we're publishing it all correctly. Um, and the fast, as I said before, the fast publication of journals is ideal for the academic world. We now look at taking a published manuscript, we're talking about a book that takes about six months, we're now looking at taking a, um, a, a word file, typesetting it, copy editing it, getting the author to check it and publishing it online within four weeks. That's our average and we're actually looking at ways and methods at the moment to make that even quicker and we're talking to a lot of societies and editors, they're they, they need faster publication. So it's, it's quite an exciting place to be because nothing stands still for more than five minutes, really. <laughs> okay, so finally, what are the key qualities of a good production editor? I've been recruiting production editors for about the last 10 years, so uh, I've, I've done quite a lot of interviewing. I've seen it an awful lot of CVs. And as I said before, the... Um, Production has changed immensely since I started, and what we do on a day-to-day -day basis has changed a huge amount. When I first started, a lot of the processes were done in-house. People were copy editing in-house. We even did some typesetting in-house, believe it or not. Um, these days, everything pretty much is outsourced. However, the skills needed for production editor haven't changed. So although many of the tasks are now done by our suppliers, we still need to know how they're done, and we still need to be able to recognise good quality. We need to recognise good quality copy editing. We need to recognise when typesetting goes wrong. So a good eye for detail is essential. Also, I think as I said before, it's much more of a project management role. So you're managing the suppliers, you're managing the authors, you're managing the editors, and you're managing all the processes and trying to put them together. Somebody explained to me the other day, you're like the spider in the middle of the web, trying to keep everything together and get everything published on time, best possible quality, and within budget. Um, and I think one of the most important things is, is, is the one I put on the bottom, which is to manage change. Production is, ch publishing is changing huge amounts, and, and production is not being left out of that. Production is, is right up there. So um, what we're doing today, we may not well be doing in two years' time. But I believe that these skills will, will stay constant and um, th these are the, main, the most important skills that a production editor needs. That's it from us. I hand over to Mark. Okay. No worries, thank you. Thank you. Can I just say what I'm setting up? It's really nice to see so many people at a presentation about production. <laughs> I'm saying this to these guys at the start. See a really full room like this because, you know, from my perspective, production are usually very much back office, let's be frank. Uh, we don't tend to get out much in the, in the, in the publishing world. And it's, so it's really great to see so many people coming up and showing an interest in what we do. So I can't show you my secret notes. Let's go. Okay, um, I'm coming from Elsevier Global Book Production. I've got a bit of a highfalutin title, which tends to change on a six-monthly basis. Um, I'm director of e-content this month. Uh, what that means in, a, in English is that I, uh, in inverted commas, own the Global Book Production process, systems, infrastructure, etc. I speak for the whole of Global Book Production in terms of how we do what we do. Okay, now that sounds 
a little bit highfalutin again, but it, I, I don't tend to get involved too much in the detail of it, but someone needs to oversee all that because it is such a big, complex thing nowadays to produce things XML first, exactly as these guys said so well, and get it out to an enormous number of third parties and put it in print and put it up on XML and blah, 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 blah. It all happens. Where I came from, which I think is perhaps a little bit interesting to, to talk about as well, um, I originally got a degree in physics and philosophy. I had nothing to do with, with publishing. I had no uh, career plan when I left university. Uh, I worked for BMW for about a year, building their computer systems. Uh, decided that perhaps wasn't for me, and so took a job in London, working for a very small publisher uh, as a journal desk editor back in the day, when we all did our typesetting in-house and or, you know, the, the copy editing. And my job was to take the manuscript and get my little red pen out and just pass it on to someone else who typesetted it in-house. My God, it all seems so old now. And then, believe it or not, we had a printer downstairs. A nice old Polish lady who would print all of the journals ourselves. And she was lovely, but you know, the world moved on, and I, I moved on as well. Went over to Elsevier um, probably about 1999, uh, which shows my age a little bit. Um, got involved at just the right time, the previous massive wave of change in book production, which was, at the time, again showing my age, the move to SGML. Everyone went into SGML first. They'd done it for journals a few years before. I think we're pretty much on the same level as OUP around that. And then we started to do it for books. Because I worked in the reference works division, the very big, large reference works, you know, 10, 20, you know, hundreds of volumes in some cases, we were the first to go on the Science Direct platform, which I think probably quite a few of you know from Elsevier. It's a, a big platform for, for Elsevier books and journals. So I was involved in getting the first lot of book content on that. And that led via a rather circuitous route to where I am now. Still working in XML first now, uh, still trying to iterate and improve the processes all the time. So that's a little bit of the background up front. Um, this presentation does focus a little bit more, because you guys covered it so well about the role, and I would absolutely agree with everything you said about the role. I've got a little bit in there from my perspective, but it's pretty much just to reiterate what you've already said, and perhaps give a slight slant about where I see that role going. Um, one other thing I should say, because occasionally I see a slightly worried glance from people, I drink far too much coffee and I talk too fast. So if I am going too fast, please just say, okay? My team are brilliant. And actually, I was speaking to uh, one of the guys who works with me in the States the other day, and I was telling her that I was doing this presentation. And she said, whatever you do, Mark, do not drink coffee beforehand. So, of course, I had a double espresso just before this. Uh, and I'm feeling great now. But hopefully, you can bear with me on that. Um, okay. Let's talk a little bit about how we're structured, first of all. Um, because I think it's maybe a, a, appropriate to talk about this. You all know there's a book production group and a journals production group. But what else Elsevier does, because it's such a big company, is we have an operations team. So we have a guy sitting reporting directly to the CEO of Reed Elsevier who runs our operations group, which is journals, books, the e-side of things, um, and customer service. And then over on the side, people who manage our DTDs and our posters <coughs> around that, and also a whole group dedicated to running our suppliers. These are all within one group that aren't publishing. We are a service department for publishing within Elsevier. Does that make sense? So there's a whole group of us set up to serve the publishing unit and make it run as slick as possible. That's entirely what we're here for. Um, just as a, a question, I was saying Elsevier is really big. Could anyone want to give me an estimate about how many people work in operations in Elsevier? Because I'll fully confess, I only found, out, found this out last week. I knew about my bit, but I thought I'd better come along with at least a, a sort of service uh, layer of knowledge that I could talk to you about. But throw out a few numbers to me. How many, how many people do you think work in Elsevier Ops? 
1,500. My God, you must have read my notes, because that is exactly right. That is exactly right. You get a prize for that. Brilliant. Either that or you've done your research. Um, so there are about 1,500 employees uh, globally in Elsevier. Okay? Journal production, around 400. Book production, around 350. So that just shows, the reason I'm saying that is not to say you go, wow, or anything like that. It's just to say, that's the size of the opportunity. We're not a small company. We're a very big industrial scale company. We do a lot of stuff. And I'll do a little, a little pop quiz later on to say how much stuff we do. So my bit of it, I report into Ian Hawley, who's a director of book production. He is based in Oxford, as am I. Uh, I work with many of my colleagues up there, but it's just to show you how we're spread around globally. So Annie Martin runs our S&T publishing group. Michelle Harness, who used to work for me, runs our health sciences group out in the States. Does a very good job of that. Ganesh is running our Chennai office. And my good friend Colin is running our European operations, which are across Germany, France, Spain, and somehow Brazil got into a mayor. <laughs> but that's the way it goes. Um, and Colin also worked in Germany for a number of years. He's just come back to the UK. Um, Karen runs our multimedia and e-learning group out in the US. Peter Lord, who employed me in Elsevier back in the day uh, when it was all ink on paper, he does a great job with our print management group. And there's me over on the side. Um, that my job title there is called e-product support, which was probably from a few months ago. I think my boss just rolls a dice occasionally about my role. Um, I, I work very closely with David Rossum in Amsterdam, who does all our e-book side of things. He focuses purely on Amazon, on Inkling, on the relationships with those guys. Um, Graham Blackler took over my previous job, which is doing our Lean Six Sigma operations. We've got a whole group of people doing Lean Six Sigma around, um, around our company. And then Christy, who I work with very, clo very closely, who monitors all our suppliers. So it just shows you the type of roles we have within our group. Um, this is how we break down as a group. 365 FTEs broken across a whole load of different roles there. So book project management, as you guys said before, it's the core of it. It's the absolute core of it. But we do have a substantial group just doing multimedia assets, e-learning, things like that. A group just doing print management. A great group of designers in Oxford and St. Louis. Um, a group that did major reference works, that was my background before. Some illustrators who mainly focus on the, the health sciences, medical illustration and the outsourcing around that. 3% of management and TA, which is broadly equivalent to your guys who do all that checking up front. We have some of it on the suppliers, we do some of it ourselves. So it's like a login stage. This all making sense so far? Can you just say FTEs full-time employees? Full-time employees, yep, sorry. I am fully <laughs> enmeshed in management bullshit, so sorry. Please do stop me sometimes if I get a bit too much into it. Um, I need people to say it sometimes as well. But the other key thing is we're based in three offices. Nearly 95% of our employees are in three offices, Oxford, Chennai, and St. Louis in the States. So that's how we're split across the group. Very small layer of people in other offices. In fact, we haven't got anyone involved from anymore because she moved over to Oxford. But that just shows you how we're split out as a group. Okay. So Oxford is very much one of the hubs for publishing for Elsevier books. Okay, now, I think you guys covered this really well. I'm not going to talk about this too much, um, but I just wanted to emphasise the roles within getting this stuff done. So the PM's at the centre of this, the centre of the spider web getting it done, but we do have people who do all the multimedia assets, who are over we have our PM's overseeing the copy editing, proofreading, corrections, all of this stuff going through. There's a lot of people going into books and getting the book done. We tend to get involved, it varies from group to group, depending on how much editorial development's involved, how much sort of checking the science before it comes over to us. But we tend to get involved from point of submission onwards nowadays. So as soon as the author submitted their manuscript and someone said, this is good, 
off we go. That's when production starts. Sometimes even before that, if we've got a very large book like Gray's Anatomy or something like that, which we publish, where we've got to start doing the anatomy drawings up from. So there's a lot of people processing stuff going through it. The people we work with here, sorry just to reach behind your head quickly there, but we have a science and technology publishing division, we have a load of different health sciences groups doing all sorts of areas like anatomy, uh, medical, uh, nursing, health professionals, loads of different areas within that. And obviously the S&T group, group breaks down as well. We've got a group uh, in Amayala, which means uh, Europe, Middle East uh, and Africa, and Latin America's there on the end. We've also got an APAC group, which is uh, Asia Pacific. Okay, so we are a truly global company. Okay. Any questions on that before I move on? Okay, then I've got a question for you. I'm going to look at you again because your, your answers are so good before. How many books do you think we produce a year? Any estimates on that, Ron? Come on, throw a number at me. Don't be shy. No? Everyone's feeling very shy today. Okay. 800, thank you. Thank you. Okay. 1,868 last year, books produced. Now, that breaks down across the different groups like that, and you know, I don't expect you to keep up on all of the, uh, the abbreviations, but in English language, across science and technology and health sciences, it was about 1,200. In EMEA, which was you know, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and Brazil as well, uh, about 550. And you see how that breaks out in terms of pages, in one million pages. Now, our journals group, which I don't have any figures for, is a magnitude of scale larger than that. The Jones Group in Elsevier is really enormous, so I don't have the figures for that. Also worth mentioning about our multimedia and our e-learning. Those of you who heard uh, YS talking earlier made a great point talking about we're moving from e-books to solutions. What these guys are doing here is some great work, which is really at the centre of all of that. How do we, uh, how do I explain this? How do we take all of our content and package it up in such a way so that people can use that for learning? Now, traditionally, we would have sold them a very well-prepared textbook for that, which would have aligned with their curriculum, which their lecturer would have recommended to them, and they would have bought. Nowadays, they don't do that. Nowadays, they go to Wikipedia. <coughs> Nowadays, they just do a Google search, and they get the information they need. They get the answer. How do we structure our content in such a way to get into that search, to get into that space? That is a massive challenge for our industry at the moment, especially when you're trying to reach out directly to students. Now, on the science and technology side of this, I think we've, to a certain extent, cracked this because we have some very large um, online platforms such as Science Direct, which have got this enormous critical mass of content for journals and books, and people go there if they want to find stuff. And they do that millions of times a day, and they query various things. They find the journal articles, they find the book articles. The institution pays for it. We're already in the subscription model for books, basically. We're already in that space. You may have heard about this quite a few times, the Spotify for books, but in academia, in that area at least, we're already in that space. The question is, how do we leverage that? How do we extend that idea out into learning, and in particularly for health sciences? If I knew the answer to that, I would be a very rich man, almost as rich as YS. <laughs> okay. Project management. I'm not going to talk too much about this, because I think you guys, again, covered this really well. The project manager is at the centre of all of this. The core technical skill in all of this is around project management. What I'm going to talk about, which is very much my world, is around e-revenues and p-revenues and so on. Okay? Now, I don't know if you, you guys follow the press. I was at a conference uh, on Thursday in London, the Future Book Conference. I think a few other people have mentioned this this week. Very interesting conference. And people were saying, oh, it's great because 10% of our revenues are now e. 
okay, that's great. In our health sciences world, where we're struggling to get that sort of E presence, it's around that number. For our science and technology world, as you can see from the numbers there, we're already 50-50 E and P. The future has arrived. Okay, the print book is gone down. It's currently on a parity with what we sell on Science Direct to institutions, with what we sell via Amazon and various other platforms. That day is here, and that's the world we live in now. So when you think about getting into book production going forward, that's pretty much the landscape you need to think about. It's not about the look of the PDF page anymore. That's a critical element. Underneath that, as you guys were quite rightly saying before, it's the XML underneath that at the moment. It may well be HTML5 going forward. That's one of the things we're currently thinking about. And then over there is all the different platforms we have. So I've talked about ScienceDirect numerous times. Clinical Key is uh, a clinical platform for our health sciences content, mainly to uh, clinical institutions. Elsevier Evolve is our education platform. You probably know the first two icons there, Kindle, everyone knows. We do a massive amount of sales through Kindle, about 15% of our S&T sales through Kindle already, pretty much. Um, iBooks, great ideas, a uh, lot more you can do with the platform. I like iBooks, I like the format. Um, don't tend to buy books that way. Seems the customers, most of our customers are that way as well at the moment, I'm afraid. One company I particularly like, which I would recommend you look at if you don't know them already, is Inkling on the end. Really interesting company, doing a lot of interesting stuff around textbooks, around probably getting into the education space as well. And they're one of the few companies I've met that, that we really like uh, in terms of how they think about preserving the integrity of the design of the print in an e-space without retaining the page. Does that make sense? So they're thinking about how the book's structured and what it means and how we can present that nicely on an iPad, on your Android tablet, etc. So they're doing some really nice stuff and they're building some new tools to help us do that, which is great. Um, we've just signed up on a big deal with O'Reilly. I think probably a number of you know O'Reilly as a publisher. If you don't, look them up. They're probably one of the most innovative publishers in our, in our space. And they're doing a lot of interesting stuff in the book world, a lot of interesting models on that, some which work, some which don't. Um, but we've just entered in a big deal with them to sell our e-books uh, DRM-free, digital rights management-free via their store. We also do it via our own store as well, which is mentioned down there too. That's just a few of the platforms we sell to. And to pick up on the point you were saying before, which I thought was a really great point, we've got to think about a process that gets all of that content to all of those different places. Now, if we were still working purely in InDesign and then spitting something out else at the end that we handed over to someone who then made it nice e-format for all these other places, we'd be out of business in no time, doing 1,000-odd books a year like that. It's just not scalable. You just can't make any money out of it. You can't make that work in that way. So we've had to build our processes to constantly evolve around that. And up till now, we've done okay with XML first in that. We built our own DTD years, years ago for that. For those who don't know what a DTD is, it's, it's the form of grammar and syntax you allow for your XML. So it basically says, these are the, these are the words you're allowed to speak in our XML language. Okay, very simply. So... A little bit about XML-first production as a source of all deliveries. We are developing a lot of enhanced interactive multimedia. We're trying to get that into the ebook space, but as you probably know already, Amazon's Kindles really aren't there to do that, even the new Kindle Fire format. Not really as multimedia capable as uh, Apple iBooks. Sadly, no one buys things from Apple iBooks. Uh, Inkling's getting into that space as well, but of course, what you don't want to do is give someone a two or three gigabyte file to download for your book. 
So there's a limit to how much video and how much audio you can put in and should put in. And we're still trying to find that sweet spot with our customers to say, okay, this is the level of enhancement they want that they're willing to pay for. Conversely, at the other end of that, what's really interesting from my side of things, and I'm deeply involved in the project around this at the moment, is people just wanting to buy chapters from us. And I was talking to a few of you over lunchtime about the whole chapter sales model. Here's an interesting thing for you. Amazon, as you know, if you buy an MP3 from Amazon today, you can buy the single MP3 track, or you can buy the album, yeah? Is that all making sense? You can do the same with iTunes, yeah? We went out to Apple, and we went out to Amazon, and we said, we'd like to do that with chapters from books, please. Amazon said, yeah, all right, we, we can do that, but the model they came up with was not like an album model. It was basically put the chapter individually up on Amazon's store, and then you can do a search for it, but there's no relationship back to the parent book. So it got lost. It got lost amongst millions and millions of products that Amazon did. Apple said, great idea, but no thanks. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? It's another revenue channel for both of us. They weren't interested. So it's interesting to see how that market's going, particularly because journals have been very much an article market for years, particularly in the academic space, it's obvious. Students just want an answer to a question. Hell, they might even just want to buy a paragraph of this. Mm. We just want to get that information to them. That's the key thing. Get them the answer to the question at the right time. That's where the model's going. So that's another interesting thing in all of that. The one thing I want to say here is, is print becoming one deliverable amongst <coughs> many. People traditionally would think about print then doing the E stuff and all of the E stuff. Now what we're thinking about, especially as we move more to POD, to print on demand, is, well, we're just going to maintain a whole plethora of potential deliverables at any point. And so when we update one, we update all. Now, that's very hard to do when you're working with partners such as Amazon, and they may say, well, actually, I can't be bothered <coughs> taking your new versions every time they come up. So we have to work with them and improve the models around that. But again, that's the way things are going. Rolling releases, perhaps we put some uh, money behind that, perhaps we charge a little bit extra for that. But the customer's starting to expect that. And we've got to respect it and find a way to service them. Okay, you'll be pleased to hear this is my last slide. This is very quickly, I, I've got nothing to add to, to what you guys said before about the, the PM technical qualities, things you need to know for the job. Absolutely agree, it's all, it's all correct. But someone asked me the other day about what the core thing was that I saw for a production person. And I'm not saying this is exclusively production, but this is something I look for in my team and just generally across the board. What this diagram means, and I've stolen this from Tim O'Reilly, <coughs> uh, who again, O'Reilly Publishers, they're a very interesting company to look at. Is there a pen for this whiteboard I can use? Um, sure if not, no, no problem, no problem. And Tim O'Reilly's got this lovely diagram where he says, okay, someone working over time, what people normally do is they'll work away for a little bit and they'll keep doing the work and they'll keep building up. And then at one point, the sort of person he was looking for, he was talking about programmers at the time, will just have enough and say, okay, I'm going to code this problem out of existence. And so they will not do any more productive work for a bit. They will work and work and work to find a solution, but then the problem goes away. So the whole technical solution flatlines over time. Does that make sense? So they spend the time up front to fix the problem, even though it's more work for them. Yeah? Whereas a lot of other people, quite reasonably, would just say, I will just slog through it. I will just keep working and keep working and keep working, and then the next time it comes up, I will keep working again. Well, ideally, what I look for from my team is someone who will take that little bit of extra time to say, this process is crap. I'm going to fix it. Or there's got to be a way of automating this. Or I bet you I could find a way to get our suppliers to do this, which it sounds very similar to what you guys do as well. <laughs> we love those people. We think they're great. We want more of them. That's the core problem-solving skill. 
how can I look at this? How can I challenge it? How can I make it better? And that, for me, is what production, operations, is all about. Making it better, making it slicker, making it faster, making it better for the customer. Okay? That is it from me. Any questions? <coughs> I don't get involved with much, too much in the how we sell it to customers. Um, we're in some ways, from my perspective, at the mercy of the channels. You know, Amazon wants to lock people into Kindle. They don't want people to take the Moby file out and take it anywhere else. Um, but we've done. We've had a very good deal with O'Reilly. Our customers seem to really like it. It's it's another channel. It doesn't seem to do any worse now. Uh, you know, again, I, I take a lot of analogies from the music industry. Uh, Amazon sell their MP3s, DRM-free, but with a certain little bit of branding behind it. It doesn't seem to do, do the mu music industry much more harm than it's done itself over many years. So does that answer your question? Yeah. I, I have no strong preference, in other words, but it's what the customers want or respond to. It doesn't seem to cannibalize sales, is the way I'd say it, from what my colleagues in, in the business side tell me. What about you guys? What do you think of that? Can you repeat the question? I'm not sure I understand. So I was just asking about the DRM free ebooks. Um, being a journalist person, I'm not sure I can answer that. Sorry. It's not really <laughs> area, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Any more questions, guys? A bit of a technical question. Is the language used in Elsevier's DTD similar to the stuff that would be in OUP's version of it, or do suppliers have to kind of? Well, I, I wouldn't know what's an OUP's DTD. Uh, they're welcome to send it to me and I'll have a look at it. But um, that would probably be industrial espionage. Um, we, we probably tend to go around the same standards. I mean, there's only so many ways to structure a book, after all, or a journal. Um, I think that would be my tactful way of answering that. There are, of course, some open source industry standards, such as the NLM DTD yeah. coming through now, which I think we're all starting to hear about. I'm, I'm less interested myself in XML nowadays. I think we're moving away from XML as a format and more towards HTML5 as a format or XHTML. Uh, I don't want to get too technical about that. I could bore for hours about it. But um, that's the way I see the industry going. And I see a lot of players starting to focus on what they can do with HTML5 and then through various style sheets, render it out to different platforms. That, that I think, is the next iterative step we've got to think about. But it's a massive step. And I think that, yeah, there are a number of different DTDs, as you mm. say, there are standard ones. Absolutely. Uh, but it's, so some publishing companies may well use the same one, but, but many use very different ones. I think many create their own. Yeah, so yeah. There's many historical ones out there. We're not saying it's a good yeah. situation, but it's a situation. And we're always looking at improving them and changing them and yeah. doing it better. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know we've got a lot of students here who are interested in getting into publishing um, for a starting position. Um, what advice would you give them in terms of what they can do to make themselves okay. most attractive to you and to perhaps stand out from what you probably have a massive stack of CVs given the current jobs market yes. every time something comes up? It's a really good question. <laughs> and uh, yes, yeah, so I employ entry-level positions. I employ assistant production editors into the journal's production department. And over the last year and a half to two years, the number of applicants has gone like that. So yes, we can have up to 200 CVs that we're looking at for one position. So some of the ways that you can make yourself stand out, take internships, 
get as much work experience as you possibly can, even if it's just a week, even if it's just a couple of days, anything that's going to make you stand out from someone who's just left university and hasn't done any work experience will help. Any interest at all you have, particularly in production, will definitely make you stand out. Um, so if you can get internships and work experience in production, please do, because obviously there are a number of different departments that you can go into when you start in publishing. Um, and production, as Mark said, we're the backroom boys. We're, we're, not always the, we're not always everybody's first choice. Everybody's going into editorial and marketing. If you want to get into production, you want a production job. If you can get some production experience, that will really make you stand out when we're looking at your CVs. Um, obviously, publishing degrees are very, very helpful. But anything that just gives you a bit of experience, a bit of understanding of what we do is really going to help. Anything to add? It's interesting because when I was at that Futurebook conference uh, on Thursday, um, someone asked the head from uh, dig uh, Digital in Hachette this very question. And he was looking at more from a, a digital angle. And he said uh, three things, which I, I sort of agree with. He said, one, know about markup languages, know about DTD, know about these things. I, I think having some basic knowledge of that is, is going to be helpful going forward in that. Um, he also said that you know, project management is key, which I, I, would, I would certainly agree with. Uh, and he specifically referenced things like Lean and Six Sigma. I would say if you have knowledge about how these process engineering methodologies work and how they've come from manufacturing and starting to come into the office, um, that's very helpful from my perspective. Read Eric Ries' um, Lean Startup in particular. That's a great book, and it talks about how you take those things more into a, a programming and more of a human environment than the, the, the Toyota and the factory and so on. And the third piece is uh, be willing to manipulate data. So just be able to understand data. I think it's a really a core skill for all of us now when you're getting these big spreadsheets coming in. How do I make a pivot table out of this? How do I make something meaningful from this data? And I think that's, that's a skill that people aren't really taught in, in many classes outside of statistics. Uh, I was taught it as part of my physics degree and then probably forgot every single thing until I, I, I joined Elsevier. But it's a very important skill to have. So that, that's probably the only thing I'd add to yours on that. And can I just add, I thought your last slide was excellent, and that is something we are really, really looking for now in the changing world of publishing and production, is problem solvers, and people to look at how we can do things better, how we can do things more efficiently, and how we can do yeah. things better, rather than just plodding through the work that's already yeah. there. And the, the other thing I'd say, if I may have, sorry, about the digital piece, which I think is important, and you, you were mentioning before, that, you know, we, you know, I think we were all saying we'd all be the backroom boys. <laughs> the digital piece is at the vanguard of uh, the geeks taking over the world in, in, in uh, production and, and I think, well, in publishing in general. And uh, I've got this wonderful quote I meant to say before, actually, from uh, Karen McGrain, who I'd, I'd look up on, on Google if you've never heard of her. She's got some very good ideas and has worked with a lot of big media companies. Um, she says, where, where previously digital had to live in a cage outside, and now digital's been allowed into the house with its owners. It's not allowed up on the furniture or in the bedroom or anything, but it's sort of integrated. Even if it gets to be in the same house, it's still treated as being not quite up there with the real business. And someone else was saying earlier today that digital is infiltrating publishing. And I think the, the reason I'm saying that is that's a different angle to think about production and production skill set. You've got these people coming in with a very good software background, with a very good coding background, but they're not always people who are connecting that to the books business and to the process side of things. So if, you can, if you're of the right age, if you're a digital native, to use the jargon, that can come in and do that and combine these things, then you're doing great. And I would definitely look at your CV in that respect. Are you ready?
Um, well, I was actually a student at Oxford Books. I did the publishing undergraduate degree, so I know kind of like people who are students what how difficult it is. I would say in terms of work experience, try it is hard to get work experience, um, but make the most of any like random connections you can make. I think I got work experience at OUP through a friend of a friend of a friend kind of type thing. And it's a good way to get your foot in the door and just take anything you can get, really. And then also, if you are doing something like a publishing course, if you're thinking, if you think straight away about the type of roles you want, when you're doing project work, when you're working in teams, try and take on those roles. Because actually, during your interview, you can say, actually, I did the production for this project. I managed this. I stood project managed it. And that's just as valid as having like actual work experience in the workplace. Can I sorry, I just have one more thing. Um, we we said we've said a couple of times with the backroom boys, but actually one of the skills that is really emerging, especially in our department in journalist production, is customer relations and customer service. So you may not think about production that being important in production because you're sitting there manipulating content and ploughing through work and getting stuff out. But as we manage more processes and manage more suppliers and, and work more. Uh, more closely with authors and editors to, to be able to, to communicate well, to be able to have a good customer service background is also something that's really, really important and really shines when we're interviewing people. We're interviewing people that can communicate well, talk to people well, that, that really impresses us. The communication skills are completely agree. I think it was Seth Godin, the blogger, who said that um, anyone who is in contact with a customer is in customer relations, Absolutely. is in customer relations. It's a great quote because you know we all are. Every time you are representing your business externally to an author base, they're going to tell their friends either you know, he's good or he's bad. Yeah. In academia, which is quite a sort of tight-knit community, once yeah. bad word spreads out, you know, one bad thing means ten good things. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's always a rule. I completely agree with that. I've got another question if no one else has. <laughs> um, I work in editorial and I was in books and now in journals. Um, so I work with production people all the time and I think I'm probably your dream because I feel so in awe of what you do that I just capitulate to every single demand <laughs> that's ever made of me and it means that I have a very, very good relationship with my journal <laughs> managers in Chennai and San Diego. Um, but what advice would you give people going into editorial or marketing or any other, you know, we all work so much on a, a kind of... Uh, like the, the spider and the web thing, like uh, I speak to every single different department every day for, for 19 different journals. Um, what advice would you give people in different departments about how to interact with you or how to make your relationship work very well and efficiently? I think the first thing I would say is understand what we do. I think there's a huge amount of people who work in, in editorial and marketing who don't understand what we do. I think there is still this feeling that we sit there with manuscripts this high and our red pens doing this all day when nothing could be further than the truth. Um, as I said before, customer relations is really important. I don't think maybe some people in the marketing and editorial would understand that. So talk to us, we don't bite. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and actually, there are many skills that, that are equally important in editorial marketing as there are in production. So um, it's important to understand all, all areas, I think. I, I, I absolutely agree with that. The, the thing I'd probably add is, is, which I think we all need a bit more of, is really understand our customers and what our customers need. You know, the thing about paper, who our customers are, who our customers are yeah, and what they want. It's a perfect example, which I must admit, the red mist descends whenever I hear it, mm -hmm. is about paper. 
and I've been involved. Cause I, you know, I've, I've been a PM on the ground before, and you get a, you know someone who's very well intended saying, I insist that this encyclopedia or this journal, this whatever, has this paper type in it or this binding style. And you know, you're not going to buy two thousand copies of the book. So why would you feel so strongly about the paper? Yes, you know, say it needs to be this type of quality book, but then work with us to make a decision that we can both do that's economical mm. for the market. Yeah. You know, and I've, I've, had, I've had some, it's, you know, I, I've got the deepest respect for my editorial colleagues, but you get someone saying something like, I remember once we were doing a, a version of Grey's Anatomy in Spanish, and um, they were saying, oh, we want the 3D hologram on the cover. And the 3D hologram they wanted to do would cost more than the book would have been to sell. But they were so convinced this would sell more copies of the book, and we're like, no, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. And you know, it's, it, we've got to have that conversation. You've also got to keep the customer in mind. If they if they'd had the knowledge of the customer, if they'd done some market facing side of things and said, look, we focus group this, or we've got this in, and it will sell X more, of course we'll do that. But to do it on, on the hunches we've traditionally worked on, yeah. I'd be very much more cautious about that. And that comes back to the data approach. That comes back to the data approach. But also, yeah, I think production are bad in this respect sometimes, and they do just say, oh, you know, we'll get whatever paper you want. They don't always think enough about controlling the costs and stuff. I, yeah. yeah, I was just going to add to that. We are the people that spend the money as well, so we're not always the most popular. We don't sell yeah. anything, and we don't go out yeah. and gain more journals. Mm -hmm. We're the ones that are spending the money, and we're kind of holding the purse strings in, in that yeah. event. So we do have quite a lot of, as I said before, negotiating and difficult conversations with editorial for exactly yeah. those same reasons. We're, we're the killjoys. We are an editorial. Yeah, yeah we're, we're the one that kill all the nice dreams about your project. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no it's, that's not what we want to be, but it's, it is, it's a perception, isn't it, sometimes? But the it's bottom line, you can sell 3,000 books for £100,000 or whatever, but yeah. if you're spending £120,000 making them, then there's no point. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Are there any more questions? If not, I think we'll close five minutes early to give you a head start on going to get a coffee for the coffee break. Um, and then please join us in the main lecture theatre from four o'clock, which will be the closing panel. Um, and then I hope you're all going to come to the book machine um, reception this evening, which is in, um, where is it? The Jam Factory? Yeah, yeah it's going to say Jam Street, that's in Manchester. <laughs> um, okay, but um, thank you very much to thank Mark, you. Emma and Joe. Thank you.